From the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of our podcast. Hey, everybody. We are back. Happy to be with you. I don't know if any of you um, have trouble answering the question, what do you do for a living? Um, but uh, I sometimes have trouble answering that when random people ask me what my husband does for a living. You know, like, how much do well, I say? What about what you do for a living? Uh, well, that for a living usually means, like, to pay your bills. So I, there's not, well, not the I same want, question. I know, but I don't want to. Hold on. Rewind. I don't want to just jump over the fact that your contribution yes, thank you. to our family is like somehow secondary oh, or something. Okay. Like. I appreciate that little I'll I appreciate you. <laughs> well thanks, lover. <laughs> I appreciate you. I can tell. And that. our kids appreciate you. But but yeah. What I wanted to say is that it's a little tricky to answer the question, what does your husband do for a living? Especially if it's a pretty random person asking me like you know, somebody that came to the house to mm -hmm. like put ant traps in or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, let me tell you what my husband does while you're putting those ant traps down. <laughs> or repair a leaky pipe or that kind of thing. Right. Um, but lately, my husband has not been so much a traveling speaker and much more a stay at home author. And I don't know if you could share with our listeners about that a little bit. Sure. So during the whole COVID crazy lockdown thing, I first was wrapping up my writing project, which for the last year or more has been the study guide for this course on the Blessed Mother that's coming up in October, which I am so excited to teach. Yes. The juicy nectar <laughs> that I have. Uh, discovered in all the research yeah. for this course, I cannot wait to share it with my students. Awesome. It's going to be really, really exciting. We're yeah. going to. How many of you have time to spend a year researching the theology of Mary's body? But you don't have to do that. You can just come to the course because <laughs> my husband has done it for you. Actually, it's been twenty-five years <laughs> yeah, this is of research that culminated here. Yeah. Really, what I did is I just went back to all the books I've read on the Blessed Mother over the last twenty-five years yeah. or more, and and just started unpacking it all in light of John Paul's Theology of the Body. So that that writing project wrapped up for me maybe six weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And as you know, then I started writing a new book. Right. I don't know what this is going to be titled. Yeah. I have various ideas. I, I kind of conceive of this as a sequel to my book, Fill These Hearts, which okay. was all about desire. Mm -hmm. And what do we do with the ache? What do we do with the longing? And those three approaches to desire being you're either going to become a stoic, an addict, or an aspiring mystic. You know, you either repress all that desire or you indulge in finite pleasures or you learn how to open it up to the infinite. That was Fill These Hearts. This one is, I started out thinking this is what my book's going to be. And then as I started writing, it's just blah, 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 stuff started bubbling up, bloop, 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 bloop. <laughs> and it took me in a whole different direction. I would say one of the, the key insights of this is of what I'm writing, the key, I don't know, the angle on it is, um, this shouldn't be a surprise coming from my whole 
world of theology of the body, which which I don't I don't I don't even like. I really don't like that we we conceive of well, there's the Catholic faith and there's the theology of the body over there. It's like some subset. It's not. The Catholic faith is theology of the body because the Catholic faith is faith in the Word made flesh. Oh yes, this is what our faith is, and what's coming out. Over and over and over and over and over again, in a, as I'm writing this, is the concreteness of of Catholicism. The concreteness the, of we encounter Jesus in the body. There's no other way. We are saved by His body. We're saved by His blood. It's the source and summit of absolutely everything we believe. So I'm talking a lot about the Eucharist in this book, and one of the one of the things I'm unfolding is this. It dawned on me. On one of those Sunday mornings that we were doing our family prayer mm -hmm. time Cause together because we, couldn't go, we couldn't go to Mass. And it dawned on me that, you know, it shouldn't really surprise us that Jesus says bread and wine can become his body and blood. Because every time Jesus ate bread and drank wine, it became his body and blood. Mm-hmm. This is the theology of the digestive system, if you will. Mm. You, 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 you assume into yourself whatever you eat. Mm -hmm. So just think of this. If the goal of creation is to become one with Christ, to be taken up and to become one body with Christ, that's the goal of creation according to Scripture. That everything would be summed up in Jesus Christ, in his flesh. This is what St. Paul tells us. Read, read the letter to the Ephesians. It's all in there, chapter 1 and chapter 5. The goal of all of creation is this marriage, that everything would be summed up and become one body with Christ. If that's the truth, if that's why every blade of grass exists, if that's why every, every tree and every fish and every bird exists, then how happy were those fish that Jesus ate mm. 2,000 years ago? Because they became his body. Mm. How happy was the lettuce that Jesus ate? Because it became his body. The bread that Jesus ate became his body. The wine that Jesus drank became his blood. At the mass, what, what's happening? It's like we it's like it's like we're witnessing that in, in sacramental form. We're witnessing the theology of Jesus' body right there. The the, the bread becomes his body. And, but here's the thing. When Jesus ate bread, he divinized the bread. Well, at Mass, we eat this bread, and it divinizes us, because it ain't bread. It's been transubstantiated into the very body and blood of Jesus. But I invite everybody out there to think on this. Think about the mystery of the digestive system. And, and this is another... <laughs> I know this might just sound so weird to people out there. Am I weird? I think I'm weird, but I think I'm weird in a good way. Like the 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 gift here is you get this. The theology of the body gives you this angle on reality that you don't typically have. And one of the lines is one of these just kind of toss out lines in the Pope's catechesis on the theology of the body. He says not only is the external body a theology. You know, I look I'm sitting next here next to you here, Wendy, mm -hmm. and and your body, your feminine form proclaims a great mystery to me. But John Paul says, it's not only that, it's also your internal organs mm -hmm. are a theology. There's a theology of the heart. There's a theology of the liver. There's a theology of the lungs. Mm -hmm. There's a theology of the pancreas. There's a theology of the digestive system. Mm -hmm. And 
And we hear digestive think system and we immediately think like some biology class and that's all fine and good, but it's also theology. The digestive system exists for the purpose of our divinization. God gave us a digestive system, not just so we could eat a, a cheeseburger, as awesome as that is. I love eating a good cheeseburger. God gave us a digestive system so we could be divinized, mm -hmm. so we could gnaw on his flesh. That's what it says in John 6. I want you to gnaw on my flesh, to chew on it, munch on it. The connotation in John 6 in the original Greek is, is that of, a, of an animal <laughs> ripping flesh off a bone. Like it's that visceral. The, the digestive system was created for divinization. How about that? So that was one of the chapters in my new book. And as, as you can tell, when you I get on a roll... You just got a preview of it, yeah, listeners. I, I get a little excited about, about this it? stuff. So <laughs> there you have it. That's what I'm writing. That's what I'm working on. I don't know when it'll be out, uh, but yeah, we'll keep you posted. Yeah. I'm so glad you're working on that. Me too. It's exciting. I have a question from... You know, I just want to oh, say one, oh. one more thing. Pray for me in my writing process. It's uh, I'm a slow writer. Okay. I'm a slow writer. I labor over sentences and paragraphs. So I have this wide, we have this wide audience who's listening to us right now. I yes. just thought, please, everybody, will you pray for me in my writing process? I'd be grateful. That's all. Yes. Okay, let's Thank go Thank you. I have a question from Roberta. Hi, Roberta. Roberta says, first, I want to thank you for your podcast. It has helped me a lot in my life. So glad. I am currently finishing my last year in college studying psychology in Mexico. And for me to graduate, I have to do a thesis. The topic I'm investigating is the impact popular music has on male college students. Mm, interesting. To the way they see women. How listening to some types of music affects men in the objectification of women. I know Christopher is a big fan of music, so I wanted to hear your opinion on the negative impact popular music, especially rap and hip-hop genre could have on men and the way they see and treat women. Uh, this is a great follow-up to some of the things we were talking about in our last episode. I know. Uh, interesting recurring theme. Uh, first of all, Roberta, I want to commend you for taking the time to study this topic, to enter into it. I'm sure you're going to unfold some painfully revelatory things because there's no doubt about it. Uh, music, for good or for ill, has a profound impact on us emotionally, psychologically, even behaviorally. And whenever I celebrate music, I, I always qualify it with the need, this need for discernment. We talked about this in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Basic principle of what evil is. We have to have a, a proper Catholic cosmology here. And you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again, I'll never tire of saying it, because it sets, it sets us in a proper Catholic vision of the universe, and it's this, the devil doesn't have his own clay. So in this music that Roberta's studying, which I'm sure, I mean, I, I know a little bit about the kind of real degradation of women that happens in certain kinds of music, certain genres of music. And what needs to be understood is the enemy is getting hold of something sacred, beautiful, glorious, good, and twisting the heck out of it, maligning it, desecrating it, distorting it, perverting it. 
but we always have to remember there's something good in there that's been distorted. Otherwise, we end, to put a, a theological term to it, we end with the, the Manichaean error, which is to blame good things for our abuse of them. We must never blame the good things God has created for our abuse of them. We must learn how to use the good things God create, has created in the right way. Music is a great gift, a great gift from God, and it's one of the main things, of course, because it's such a powerful gift. It's one of the main things the enemy's after. He wants to take music and twist it and distort it. The greatest song ever written, the greatest song ever written, the Bible claims to have it. It's called the Song of Songs, and it's erotic. It's a celebration. It is a holy, sacred celebration of erotic love. Every song that sings of erotic love in a twisted, distorted, perverse way, you can no longer use the word love in those situations, is a distortion of the Song of Songs. That's what the enemy's after. The enemy is after the Song of Songs. So I would only say, uh, in, in the study of all that has been perverted, that Roberta's undertaking, I would invite you, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I would invite you to consider ways that the, the distortions that you'll be studying, looking at, for your own sake, Roberta, as a woman, uh, take whatever's getting twisted up in this music, and for your own sake, Roberta, ask the Lord to untwist it in your heart so that you can rediscover the goodness of your own femininity. That would, that's actually, I'm, as I think about it, that's a real concern I have for Roberta in this study. You can't just be clinical about it. There's, there's, I don't think there's a way for her to study the subject matter with it, without it sinking in mm. at some level and having an impact on her heart. So, Roberta, here's a suggestion for you. Inasmuch as you're studying this distortion in the music, I would also invite you to study prayerfully, enter into the Song of Songs. That's going to be the antidote to all the distortions you're encountering. Yeah, that's really good. I, I appreciate your concern for her experience in researching these things and encountering, you know, some really disturbing it's things. it's going to be if she's really going to do a study of this it's yeah. going to be disturbing yeah. terribly disturbing yeah and i i think you know we do have to ask like ask in our prayer ask in our study what is the the good that has been distorted and um you know some of the maybe the domination of the weak or or the um turning um, a woman into an object or um, kind of not seeing her dignity as a person or valuing it. You know, I think some of that comes from a twisting of the, the power that is given that's meant to uh, be a power that defends or uplifts those who are weaker rather than destroying them. But I think there could also be a terrible fear of vulnerability yes, on the yes. part of men that would motivate them to harm others to somehow then protect themselves from harm. And if there could be any compassion in our hearts to pray for that deeply fearful 
place in a man that he wants to hide from all of us by talking this, you know, way or behaving this way. If we could pray for that and for deep healing, I guess that... It's a keen insight, Wendy, and I, I know you've shared that with me before. It always strikes me when you share that, and I, I commend you for even your readiness and willingness to have that compassion, because very understandably, the response of a woman could be nothing but rage and uh, wanting to seek out revenge. Uh, all of that on the human level is very understandable. But the only way we can heal really from these deep wounds between men and women is to do just what you suggested there, Wendy, to say, Lord, give me eyes to see what kind of pain are these men in who are dishing out all this pain and abuse on women. Uh, that, that is a vision that only the Holy Spirit can open up to us. Uh, and it, that's not at all to sweep under the rug justice or calling to task uh, such men for their horrific abuses and the violence that they contribute to against women. But it's, it's, it's seeking to find a way towards redemption, even for those who are so far gone in that direction. So thank you, Wendy, for being mm -hmm. willing to do that. Mm -hmm. I, I want to hold one more thing out to you, Roberta. I just grabbed this off my shelf. I invited you to reflect on the Song of Songs. And this is a book called Awakening Love by Father Gregory Cleveland. The subtitle of the book is An Ignatian Retreat with the Song of Songs. Uh, this is a book I read a couple years ago and just loved it. So if anybody out there wants to do a more in-depth study of the Song of Songs, this would be something I'd recommend. A question from Mary. I recently listened to Jason Everett interview Christopher for the Love Life Conference. I had a question about something in the beginning when they spoke of jewels not being the cause of theft and the beauty of woman not being the cause of lust. I understand that. But is there some responsibility on the part of the woman to present herself in a wholesome way? I'm not saying we need to wear burlap sacks around, but is there some sort of line that's crossed between wholesome beauty and something else? I remember a girl in high school wanted to go to school in a t-shirt with no bra because she said, it's my body. I'm not ashamed. Well, that's not wrong. It's good not to be ashamed of our bodies, but we also need to respect others in how we present ourselves. I would appreciate your thoughts on this matter. Thanks, Mary, for the question. Yes, Jason and Everett and I did an interview together. He interviewed me for his virtual conference a few weeks ago, and we are making the point that men are not justified in blaming women for their own lusts. And Jason used the analogy, which I liked a lot, uh, he said, you can't blame the jewels for the theft. Mm. The, 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 the sin is not in the jewels. The, the sin, the desire to, to steal those jewels come from the human heart. Mm -hmm. Now, just as a, um, an owner of a jewelry shop should not put jewels out in the open in a bad part of town uh, and expect they're not going to be taken... Mm -hmm. stolen, nor should women think in this fallen world in which we live that if they 
show up at high school, for example, in a t-shirt with no bra, that men aren't going to lust after her. Um, so there is, there is, put it this way, if that girl knew her dignity, she would not want to dress that way going to school. Not because her body is shameful, but because if she knew her dignity, she would not want to be treated as an object for some man's lust. So here we need to answer the question. We need to distinguish between shamelessness and nakedness without shame. Shameless exposure and nakedness without shame. So in the beginning, we read, before sin entered the world, the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. This is one of the most evocative lines in all of sacred scripture. Mm. And John Paul II says, it's the key to understanding God's original plan for man and woman. Mm. Because nakedness without shame reveals that they understood God's plan for the body and not just cognitively got it, they experienced it in their hearts. They desired nothing else but to love in the image of God. The very first result of original sin is shame in their nakedness. Why? Because now the sentiment of sexual desire has become selfish. It's become inverted. What was once a desire to sacrifice myself for the other has now become a desire to sacrifice the other for myself. And if we want to look at it from the perspective of the woman, after sin, the woman covers herself and notice she's in the presence of her husband. Mm -hmm. She was married to this guy, by the way, and she still felt this need to cover herself. Why? Because the man is now looking at her as a thing for his selfish pleasure. And she knows in her heart of hearts she's not meant to be used as an object for someone else's pleasure. So she covers her body, not because the body is bad, not because the body is shameful. She covers the body to protect the goodness of the body from the degradation of lust. Shame, John Paul II says, we're not so much ashamed of our bodies, we're ashamed of this lustful experience that tempts us to use the body, to degrade the body. This is very, very important to understand. The difference between nakedness without shame and a shameless exposure of the body. Shameless exposure of the body would be a situation in which you're exposing yourself to lust. You are exposing yourself in an environment where you know you'll be treated as an object. But for some reason, you're not in touch with your dignity, or you f you get some satisfaction yourself out of this lustful... Yes, maybe some sense of being being appreciated or noticed or valued in a, in a way that's not in keeping with our dignity, right. but it's something. But we something. settle for it. Yes, with something. We <laughs> settle for it because we're so... We're so hungry to be seen. We're so hungry to be acknowledged. We're so hungry to be loved, but we often settle for a desire to be looked at. A cheap substitute for being seen is being looked at. A cheap substitute for being loved is being lusted after. So that would be, a, if you know that you're dressing in a certain way, uh, in an environment that will rouse lust in other people, and you don't care, well, that would be a kind of shamelessness, which is not the same as saying, I'm not ashamed of my body. 
uh, it's it's quite different. Uh, we 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 shouldn't be ashamed of our bodies, as I'm saying, but nor should we be wanting to expose the goodness and dignity of our bodies to degradation. And that seems to be lacking in the example she gave of this person who, mm-hmm. who dressed that way. I hope those distinctions are, are helpful for, for her and for the listeners. We have another question I think we have time for. Yes, from Kelly, who says, About seven years ago, I had a radical reversion to our faith. I have fallen completely in love with our Lord. That's and awesome, Kelly. the beautiful faith that he left us. I just can't get enough of theology of the body. Just can't get enough. The problem is that only I feel this way. My husband has no interest in the beautiful teachings of our faith and is quite hostile about theology of the body. Bless you, Kelly. He says, I've changed in the way we're intimate together, and perhaps I have because I have such profound reverence for the gift of the marital embrace. I love my husband very much, and I long to be close to him. But he says that as long as I, quote, love my faith more than him, then sex can't be what it used to be. He says that he's very sad and that there's nothing to be done for it. He isn't open to counseling. He often expresses resentment that I love our Lord more than him. I honestly just don't know what to do with this. I want to have a loving, healthy marriage, but my husband has shut down nearly all intimacy. Mm. Mm. Bless you, Kelly. Bless you, Kelly. This is This is a painful situation to be sure there's no here's the solution here's the answer to it you are paying a price here kelly for your fidelity to jesus and jesus certainly let us know that there would be such a price to pay Uh, he did say things like unless you love me more than husband wife father mother you are not worthy of me and from one perspective, that could sound like, who, who is this guy? What's he coming off as? <laughs> well, um, yeah, it does sound like that. The only way that that statement could possibly make sense for someone to say, you must love me more than anything, then he's got to be more valuable than anything. Mm-hmm. And who could possibly claim to be more valuable than anything. Uh, God. Worship. I want to look at this word worship. I think it will shine a light on this question. The word worship means you worship whatever you assign the greatest worth to. Worthship. That's where we get the word. To what do you ascribe the greatest worth? That's what you worship. It sounds to me, and this is, a, this is a human struggle since the dawn of original sin, we want to be God, which is another way of saying we want to be worshipped. And it sounds to me like your husband is saying, I don't like that you aren't worshipping me. Uh, I don't like that you're worshipping somebody else. In other words, he's saying, I don't like that you place more worth in Jesus than you place in me. And that's something that your husband has to wrestle with. I don't think you can, nor should you, soften the blow on that, because it's a rearranging of our understanding of the universe and our place in it. Uh, Wendy, you and I have had to struggle through this, too, because surprise, surprise, we're human beings, and 
Oh, yeah. We have our own struggles and we've, in our own ways, made idols of each other and needed to learn how to let go. And you've needed to learn how to give me to Jesus and I've needed to learn how to give you to Jesus and not want to be God in your life. And I see, I'm a broken man, I see that tendency and temptation to want to be the ultimate thing in your life. In other words, to want to be God for you. Mm -hmm. But our marriage has been so much brighter, so much more hopeful, so much more peaceful uh, as we've learned to step away from, from those temptations and to give each other space to, to know that there's a place in your heart, Wendy, that belongs only to the Lord. And I remember different phases, especially in our early marriage, where I could admit that in my head, I could give the right theology right on that question, but inside maybe there were resentments or I wanted to have that place. I didn't like that there were things in your relationship with Jesus that I didn't know about. Or, uh, but I've learned, I've learned to to honor that, and you've learned to honor that in me as well. And it's it's brought peace, but not without not at not without real conversion. And I think. That this dear wife, uh, her, her name's Kelly. Kelly. Mm -hmm. I think Kelly is just seeing the pain and difficulty of conversion. So my suggestion to you, dear Kelly, would be to offer that pain that you are experiencing, which is very real, offer that pain as intercession for the conversion of your husband without even talking about it with him necessarily. Mm -hmm. If the Lord opens that door, sure, but you know, praying for your husband's conversion does not mean nagging your husband to have a conversion. Praying for your husband's conversion might be a quiet, interiorly painful offering of your own sufferings as intercession for, for him to find who is God in his life, hmm. that he would find the real God, that he would dethrone himself from his own lordship and let Jesus be the Lord of his life, which will in turn shine a bright light on your marriage and your love for the Lord. And in that together, if that were to happen in this life, if you were to experience that, then a new kind of intimacy could be built from that place which would enable your marital union to be truly a sacrament of heaven rather than a grasping at something here on earth that becomes kind of a heaven substitute or a God substitute. I, I could say much more, but I'm, I'm going to leave it there for now because I think, Wendy, you can probably shine a, a bright light on this too. Kelly, I just want to encourage you, I think, in, in just the way I'm reading your question, I feel that there's some discouragement in your heart that this seems like, um, you know, there's obviously, and I uh, am so happy to know this, that there's a depth of faith in your heart that causes you not to question whether Jesus really is worth it, worth everything, really, truly. Um, and yet there is a discouragement about your marriage and your relationship with someone you love deeply. And, and perhaps you've grown to love him even more through your experience of faith. That seems likely because you're closer to the source of all love, the one who loves your husband perfectly. Um, and so, you know, you have 
deep love that's not being received and reciprocated in your marriage. Um, and yet you're continuing to grow in your faith in the Lord and allowing, you know, to receive love from him and give love to the Lord. So I think that is a powerful thing. And I guess Christopher and I both want to encourage you, God sees what we don't see and the suffering of this disconnect between you and your husband is bearing fruit that you can't see. If you can hear this and hear hope in our voices, um, know that that comes because of experience in our lives and in the lives of other people. We know that God is up to something. God loves your husband more than you do and desires greater good than you do. And the voices that would condemn you or discourage you or cause you to lose hope um, are not the voices of God speaking to your heart. So I just, we just want both of us to encourage you to continue to grow, draw close to the Lord, allow him to inspire you in the ways that you can express his love for your husband and trust that he's working on his heart. I believe you're going to see something beautiful happen. Um, and we trust that to his timing. Amen. I love always, as always, Wendy, the angle that you 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 have on the questions that come in you you just you see things i don't see and you speak to them that's why it's good that we do this podcast together yeah thanks <laughs> thank you wendy well everybody uh we are so grateful for the questions that you keep sending us keep them coming you can go to the website for the podcast if you have a question and uh, we would invite you seriously to consider becoming a member of our patron community. We can't do the work that we do. We can't fulfill the mission we've been given without patrons like you who believe in what we are doing. So think about it, pray about it. Click the link to learn more in the show notes. Uh, if you join our patron community, which you can do for as little as $5 a month, you'll get lots of goodies from us, lots of ongoing formation and exclusive benefits for being part of our patron community. It helps us a lot more than you know. So pray about it. We'd be grateful. Until our next episode, remember you are a gift, indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they're not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.